All right, we've come in our series to Zephaniah chapter 2. And you'll notice at the top of your outline this week, I'm asking you to scan the first seven verses and see if you can determine the sectional divisions or the units of this section, uh, even as you scan your English translation. My purpose here is to continue to feature the rhetorical units or the literary sections of Zephaniah's prophecy, how his argument is unfolding, how it is unfolding in terms of style, particularly rhetorical and literary style. So I'm going to ask you just to uh, read uh, silently over those first seven verses. And we'll take just a couple of minutes to look them over and then uh, I'll ask you what you think you see there. And we'll put our heads together. All right, now let's begin with the question that I raise. Has the tone of the prophecy changed from that of chapter 1? What do you think? I would say yes. And why do you think that? Okay, very good. You also notice verse 3 also contains that same type of change in tone, change in appeal. It's not the uh, theme of judgment, as Cheryl pointed out, which is peculiar to the first chapter. All right, now, uh, as you think about these seven verses, we've obviously switched gears a little bit. That is, Zephaniah has changed his tone. The Lord has changed his tone through his servant, Zephaniah. So uh, how does he arrange these first seven verses in terms of patterning that change in tone? Uh, What rhetorical divisions do you see here? Uh, How many sections would you divide these seven verses up into? As you scanned them and thought about that, uh, what do you you suggest? What do you think? It's all right, you can only be wrong. On the other hand, you can be right. Randy? Five. 
You see five sections? You, you guess five sections. I'm a great guesser. You want to point them out? One, one and two. You like one and two as a first section, all right. Three, okay. Separate section. Separate section. Yeah. Okay. Four, a separate section. Five, a separate section, and six and seven, a separate section. Okay, Randy's suggesting five separate sections. Okay. Two. You'll go with two, all right? Go ahead, Dan. What are you suggesting? One through three. One through three. Which is, yeah, and then four through seven. Four through seven. All right, so we have two propositions on the four. Uh, does anyone add a third? Dustin, we're in Zephaniah. Did you get a handout? We're in Zephaniah chapter two, verses one to seven. All right, now let's go back to Dan. <coughs> And let's ask him to justify his uh, two sections. <clears throat> what is it that suggests to you that you may be correct in estimating section 1, verses 1 to 3, section 2, verses 4 to 7? Well, section 1 is, uh, is a call to gather the people and to seek the Lord. And then... Uh, and, and the justification for that is elaborated in, it's mentioned in verse 2, but it's elaborated in 4 through 7 for the destruction uh, of the land is uh, <coughs> expounded upon. Okay, so you're making a decision on the basis of kind of a thematic development, all right? Uh, now, we pointed out that Zephaniah has a particular style. Okay, he has a style in which he uses literary repetition. Uh, <clears throat> is there any way that we could look at Dan's suggestion and see any patterns of repetition which might actually justify framing out verses one to three and framing out verses four to seven? In other words, is there vocabulary in what Zephaniah writes that indicates that he is patterning or bracketing or framing those first three verses and the next four verses. Okay, now with that suggestion, take a look again. Go ahead, Scott. Uh, well, in verses 1 and 3, you got the repetition in verse 2, the word before, twice, and then verse 3, you seek. All right, but if we're, going, if we're going to have we're going to have a section, you know, we're going to have to have a frame between 1 and 3, right? All right, so we, we're going to leave two out of our examination. Well, I'll give you the frame that I see for four to seven, and that's Ashkelon. Very good. All right, you'll notice that Ashkelon appears in verse four, and Ashkelon appears once again in verse seven. That's an intentional bracket. It's a framing of a literary or rhetorical unit. Now, we're not going to get to that tonight, but nonetheless, we established that that is part of this first seven-verse pericope. All right, now, what about verses one to three? What do you see in verse one that is also present in verse three? Not necessarily the same word, but the same pattern. Well, that's gather together, O shameful nation, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. 
that schematic again. And, uh, okay. Uh, <clears throat> what version are you reading from, Dan? Well, I have the NIV here. Okay. Uh, then you don't. Then you can't see it. I'm sorry. Uh, that's inferior translation again. <laughs> Who has an NASB? Good. Pete, do you have an NASB? Yeah. The two gathers in the first one. Very good. Go ahead. Two seats in the last. And what? And two seats in the third one. There are actually three seats in the third one. So that doesn't match. But you're on the right track for the two gathers. What do you see in verse 3? You want to try it in? Humble. Yes. Humble and humility. They're back actually both the same Hebrew root. All right. So the word for gather is duplicated. It's the same Hebrew word in verse 1. And the word for humble or humility is duplicated in verse 3. It's the same Hebrew lemma. He's using repeated lemmas to frame the section. Okay. He's using duplicate words. That is words which occur twice to frame the unit. All right. So. We've got a one to three frame based upon duplicate Hebrew words. We've got verses four to seven framed based upon one location, one geographical city of the Philistines. And that's the justification for our dividing this section into rhetorical units. Okay, do you have any questions about that? We're going to focus on verses 1 to 3 tonight, the first of the rhetorical units, with this change in tone, this change in actually style, because here he's giving an invitation. Actually, the Lord, through the prophet, is giving an invitation. Randy, you had a comment? Yeah, the Ascalon is the, the posture of the Lord towards Ascalon. Ask one is opposite in verse 4, it's verse 7. <clears throat> appears to be. Yes. Um, it is an, an object of God's wrath, that is true. So uh, next time we're going to look at how he unfolds the rhetoric of that second unit. But he has framed it with the same word, the same name, the same city location. So we're going to ask ourselves, why has he done it the way he's done it? Nonetheless, we observe that it's done because he, because he begins and ends with Ashkelon in that unit. All right, well, the change in tone can be described in terms of uh, varied uh, synonyms, varied vocabulary. So let's think about if chapter 1 is declamatory, and Cheryl pointed out very well when she described what was going on in chapter 1, if it's declamatory, what is chapter 2, at least up to verse 3? Actually, it's going to be more than verse 3, but nonetheless, at least up to verse 3. I'll try and use the big word. Is it hortatory? I like that, but uh, I want to save that for another word here. <laughs> uh, you're, in the, you're in the right uh, ballpark uh, uh, rhetorically. <laughs> If it's not declamatory, it's what's the opposite of declamatory? Exclamatory. Correct. Exclamatory. 
Okay, so he's exclaiming in this third chapter a tone of invitation. He's not declaiming a tone of destruction and judgment. All right, the next word, to dehort. Now, it is actually a word, dehort. Okay, so what's the opposite of dehort? Exhort. And that's where Dan's hortatory would come in. Okay, once again, this chapter is an exhortation. Okay, God is exhorting his people to turn unto him, to humble themselves, to seek the Lord, as we'll see in detail later on. All right? <clears throat> chapter 1 is denouncing. It's a denunciation. What's chapter 2? Announcing. Announcing. Correct. Announcing God's long-suffering, as we will see. All right, the last word. Chapter 1 is indicating the repeal, repeal of God's long-suffering and mercy in the day of the Lord, which is going to come upon Jerusalem and Judah. What's chapter 2? The uphill. Yes, the uphill. So we're thinking of this change in tone in terms of change in expression, not declamatory but exclamatory, not dehortation but exhortation. Not denunciation, but annunciation, and not repeal, but upheal. So we get into the sense, into the flavor of what is happening here in the first three verses of this uh, second chapter. All right, now, uh, <clears throat> there's another uh, observation that scopes out or confirms the fact that verses 1 to 7 are an integral unit. He begins in verse 1 with the double gather, gather. You see that in the New American Standard because it translates the Hebrew text. Literally, the Hebrew word gather is duplicated twice in that verse. Now, in verse 7, he actually uses another duplication at the end. At the beginning of verse 1 in the Hebrew text, gather, gather appears first in the text. At the end of verse 7, there are two Hebrew words that appear duplicated at the end of verse 7. So, once again, as we look at what he does with the original Hebrew text, which you can't see, we'll bring it into English translation, but when we look at the Hebrew text, he begins with a double uh, repeated Hebrew word, verse 1. In verse 7, the very last two words in that 7th verse are a doubled Hebrew word. Now, it's hard for you to see this in English translation. It doesn't make any difference whether it's the NIV or the NASB or any other version. The NASB, with the last line of verse 7, reads, and restore their fortune. That's an idiomatic way of translating a literal double, double duplication. In the Hebrew, we literally read, God will restore their restoration. He will restore their restoration. Once again, you hear the double restore in that last line. So the beginning of this section, 1 to 7, begins with a double gather, gather. It's the very first two words in the Hebrew text. This section, 1 to 7, ends with a double Hebrew duplication. Restore, restoration. So we're confirmed 
in what we've already observed. We observed up in uh, uh, up at the top when we looked at the unit one to three and four to seven other ways of framing this uh, section. But here we can tie the whole section together on the basis of duplicate verbal repetitions. Now, I acknowledge that I have an advantage because I, rec- I understand the Hebrew and I'm looking for these patterns. But uh, if, if, you could, if you would understand the Hebrew, you would see this jump right out at you. The first verse has this double repeated Hebrew word. The last verse 7 has double Hebrew repeated words at the end of the verse. Beginning and end, first and last, this is another uh, significant framing pattern. Okay, are you still with me? Okay, we've broken out the narrative or rhetorical units. All right, now let's go back to verses 1 to 3, and we'll label that subunit A. And now we're going to ask, what kind of a word is the word gather? Grammatically, how is the word gather functioning in that sentence? It is a verb. What kind, a verb in what mood? It is an imperative. Very good. And in fact, in the Hebrew, these are double imperative. Gather, gather. All right, now, let's take a look at verse 3. What jumps out at you there? Another verb. Dan? Another imperative, which is seek. Yeah, so he's using imperatives. He uses an imperative in verse 1. He actually uses it twice. He's using an imperative in verse 3. How many times does he use it in verse 3? He actually uses it three times. All right, but it's the fact that he's using an imperative. So he's using a grammatical form to frame this smaller subunit, verses 1 to 3. Begins with imperatives, he ends with imperatives. What does he do in between? What does he do with verse 2? How many times do you see a particular word in there, and what word is it? Before. You see the word before, and how many times do you see it, Kay? You see it three times. Now, what grammatically is that? That's a clause of some kind. What kind of a clause is it? Yeah, it's a prepositional phrase, but what kind of a clause is it? It's a statement of... It's a temporal clause, isn't it? Before the coming of God's wrath. Before the time of the coming of God's wrath. So, he uses an imperative at the beginning, verse 1. He uses an imperative at the end, verse 3. In between, he sandwiches a temporal clause. Why does he do that? Why does he sandwich the temporal clause between the two imperatives? Because it's imperative that before that time arrives, you see, you act, gather, seek. You see what he's done? He's placed the prominence of the urgency of the imperative in the middle of the frame in order to draw you, the reader, into the urgency of the time that is approaching. All right, so this is not just Denison fancy you know, outlines of 
uh, biblical passages. This is the mind of the prophet drawing you into the drama of the change in tone. After all, God in the first chapter has taken 18 verses to indicate Yom Yahweh is upon you. The day of the Lord is upon you. Now, imperative, gather, imperative, seek. Why? Reason for the imperatives before the time of that destruction descends upon you. Okay, so you, you, you understand the mind of the prophet, the mind of the God and the mind of the prophet. So these grammatical reflections are not incidental. They are intentional. All right, now, there are some other rhetorical or literary features here in these first three verses. We've already noted the gather, gather in verse 1. So there is duplication or what we might call repetition by the rule of twos. Why does he repeat the imperative? Well, as you look at the verse, he begins by saying, gather yourselves together. And then he adds, gather, O nation, without shame. What is he doing with that sequence? Gather yourselves together. Gather, O nation, without shame. What is he doing there? Remember, this is Hebrew poetry. And what do we know from the style of Hebrew poetry? Repetition. Yes. Yes. Goes how? How does the expansion proceed? Yes, what is A and what is more than A, B. Okay, so in this line, gather yourselves together, which is A. What is A, gather yourselves together. And what is more than gathering yourselves together, gather yourselves, O nation, without shame. This is an additive paradigm. It's an expansive paradigm. There's a parallel between the gather, gather, but it's not an exact symmetry. It's not an exact duplication. It's a duplication with elaboration. It's a duplication with additional information. We now know at the end of verse 1 that this is a shameless nation. All right, now. Let's take, yes, go ahead. Yes, okay, shameful would be fine. Uh, once again, uh, there's actually a negative in the Hebrew. It's a, you have no shame, so the New American Standard translates it without shame, and I'm simply rendering that shameless, which is equal to without shame or having no shame. Okay, now let's also uh, uh, take a look at verse 2. And we're looking for the rule of twos. What twos or twofold repetitions do you see in verse two? Verse two. Verse two. And verse two. Verse two. Mm-hmm. Verse two. One and two and three and four. No, no, just verse two alone. Ranger of the Lord. Yeah, but there are two duplications in verse two, aren't there? Before. Before the day of the Lord, the day. Before occurs three times. Three times. Anger of the Lord. 
Anger of the Lord is there. And what else? Day of the Lord's wrath. Mm, the day of the Lord only occurs once. Day of the Lord. Day of it only occurs once. Comes, comes upon you. Yes, comes upon you is duplicated. All right now, notice in that line where the first comes upon you indicate is stated. What is A, that is, what is the beginning, is God's burning wrath. Notice the burning anger. What is more than A, that is, what is B, is the day of the Lord's anger. Now, we want to come back to that a little later and ask why he changed the words in that line. But right now, we observe the fact that with the what is A and what is more than A, B, it is what is coming upon you is God's burning wrath. And what is more than that is God's burning wrath is coming upon you in the day of the Lord. It's a reminder that he hasn't gone off topic since he changed his tone from chapter 1 to verse 2, at least not entirely. All right, and finally in verse 3, we've already noted this, the duplicate word in verse 3. Acts actually used three times. What's twice in verse 3? Lord. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Lord. Lord. Um, okay. <laughs> Humble. Humble. Humble and humility. All right. Now, here, the, the pattern is what is A, all you humble, and what is more than A, Keep pursuing humility, all you humble. All right, so the uh, rule of twos functions in each of the three verses. Well, we've already noted that something occurs in verse 2 that is more than duplicated. What occurs in verse 2 that is more than twice over? The word before. How many times does it occur? Three times. So we also have a parallel of triads, a rule of threes in verse 2. And before, before, before occurs three times in verse 2. What occurs in verse 2 and 3, three times? One word that occurs in verse 2 and verse 3, three times. Okay, anything else? Wrath and anger. The anger of the Lord, yes, the anger of the Lord. The phrase anger of the Lord occurs three times in verses 2 and 3. What else? Three times in verses 2 and 3. Day. The word day occurs three times in verses 2 and 3. And what occurs three times in verse 3? We've already commented on this. The word seek. All right, so we have a rule of twos and we have a rule of threes. He likes duplicates and he likes triads. All right, now that leaves subunit B, which is verses 4 to 7. What is the focus of verses 4 and 5? What nation? The Philistines, very good. 
What is the focus of verses 6 and 7? What nation? No. No. <laughs> verse 7, Judah, yes. All right, notice that in the last verse of these two subunits, verses 4 and 5, the national name is used. Verse 5, Philistines. And all of those cities listed above in verse 4 are Philistine cities. The focus in the last verse of the second unit, 6 and, six and 7, is the nation of Judah. These are national units. Okay, verse 4 and 5 is a Philistine national unit. Verse 6 and 7 is a Judahite national unit. But they, they are combined as, uh, as linked subunits. So the whole section 4 to 7 hangs together. And as I say, we'll take a look at that in detail next time. All right, we've set out our parameters. We understand how carefully constructed these seven verses are. And in fact, Ivan Ball, whom I mentioned, whose dissertation was written in 1974, who, who provides the turning point in the study of the book of Zephaniah, a dissertation done at UC Berkeley. Ivan Ball has a, a selected, specialized article on these seven verses in which he draws out some of the things that I've already observed and I'm adding to what he observed on my own. So I'm not flying by the seat of my pants on this, uh, on this outline for you. I'm not, his name is Ivan Ball, Ivan J. Ball. Magnificent dissertation in which he preserved the integrity of the book of Zephaniah against the liberal critics. From Berkeley. Exactly, from Berkeley. You can read my article on what to read on Zephaniah and the current K-Roots in which I review that discussion, and I go beyond and look at all the commentaries that have been written on the book of Zephaniah in the last 50 years. KRoots.com, September issue. Any questions? All right, now, we turn over to the second page of your outline and go back to the first verse, and we're going to pick it apart a little more. What nation is being addressed here, and how do you know? What is this nation without change? It is Judah. How do you know, Dan? You are right. How do you know? Uh, because, I'm guessing, because it's it's the commands of God, the covenant that is referenced in verse 3 was given to Judah. Very good. It, it would be that kind of people that would be invited to seek the Lord or to repent in humility, etc. So in other words, this is a kind of evangelistic invitation, and that would not be addressed specifically to the heathen. It, or the pagans. So this is not Assyria. This is not Babylon. This is Judah and Jerusalem. Now, when he uh, invites them to gather, um, what, what is, why does he use the image of gathering? Is there anything that he says after verse 1 that would give you a clue as to why he uses 
the image of gathering? I, I think the, the word sheltered in verse 3 is interesting. I don't think we need to go to verse 3. Okay. It talks about chaff. Yes, it's the chaff in verse 2. And you gather the chaff. Now, we're going to ask in a little bit how you gather it and why you gather it. But nonetheless, the, the, the image of gathering coming out of what is described in verse 2 as the, uh, the, the chaff passing. All right. Now, what is the purpose of this invitation? In other words, God is inviting them. He's, in fact, conv- commanding them. This is an imperative Commanding them to gather for what purpose? Here's the decree. Within verse 1. Decree is in verse 2. I'm restricting you to verse 1. You're not allowed to look at verse 2 for answers to this question. Well, if they gather, they might realize their shame. Exactly, yes. Gather to confess or acknowledge your shame. That's what he's inviting them to do. All right, now, the New American Standard translates that line without shame. It's literally in the Hebrew, not shame. And so, you know, idiomatically we put it uh, as without shame. Uh, what What is he talking about here? They are without shame. They're not capable of, of, of feeling ashamed of their sin. Uh, they're not capable or they just, they just refuse. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, they have the capacity, but they morally are objecting and they're morally resistant or hardened. It's a good word against that. All right. Now, what does this shame arise from or, or, or what shame is God looking for? There's sin. How does sin produce shame? Guilty of wrongdoing. Guilt. That's the word we wanted. Okay. Shame arises from the guilt that is sensed, okay? You do something wrong, you feel ashamed, you feel guilty. Your conscience convicts you, uh, at least if you have a normal conscience. Uh, we live in a day when there aren't many normal consciences, uh, particularly at higher, higher levels of our culture. But in, in any event, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> the shame here is related to the guilt that is the reflex of committing sin. All right, now, you'll notice that the margin of the New American Standard translates this word shame or suggests an alternative for translating it as longing or desire. You are without desire. You are without longing. So let's think about that for a minute. Let's suppose that the New American Standard marginal reading is a more accurate translation of the Hebrew. For the moment, I won't argue the point one way or the other. Let's just think about it, okay? If we translate this verse, or the second part of this verse, a nation without longing, what is Zephaniah saying? What's he mean? What does God mean, a nation without longing? No desire for God. No desire or longing for God. That's exactly right. So the shame here, and we could say that they are both involved by way of nuance, the shame involved is that you have no desire for God. 
You have no longing for the Lord, your creator and your covenant redeemer. That certainly is shameful in and of itself, particularly when you're talking about the history of God's mighty acts with Israel and Judah. All right, so either way we translate it, either way we lean with respect to what the Hebrew means, and I do actually think the Hebrew means more shame than longing and desire. Okay, I think I think I lean that way uh, with the uh, New American Standard uh, uh, reading in the proper translation, not in the margin. But regardless of that, you get the idea. If if this shame is in fact shameful, it is because this nation has no longing or loving desire for the Lord God. All right, verse 2. Now I want to think about the decree. What is the decree? This word in the Hebrew, which is pronounced hok, this word can actually mean statute or ordinance. The the term decree has been chosen here. Uh, Well, let's ask. Uh, as it reads in the New American Standard, uh, what is the decree? Whose decree is it? What is that decree? God's. It is God's decree. What do we say about God's decrees? All you Calvinists out there, what do you say about God's decrees? They come to pass. They come to pass? Why? Why do they come to pass? Because he's sovereign, uh, you haven't answered the question. What is his decree? Define what his decree is. Don't give me a synonym, it's sovereign. There are his purposes. His purposes? We're getting there. I need something stronger than purposes. His will. Par- pardon? His will. His will. Now we're getting there. What else? I need something stronger. The commandments. His what? His commandments, well, they're a reflection of it. Righteous. Yeah, they are righteous. His decree is his will, is his purpose, is his plan, is his, I need something stronger, is his justice, is his (laughs) determination. Does he determine things by his decree? Yes. Did he decree to create the heavens and the earth? Yes. Did he determine to create the heavens and the earth? Yes. Was there any possibility that when he determined to create the heavens and the earth, he wouldn't create the heavens and the earth? No. no. He determines to do and it is done. The decrees of God are deterministic. They determine events. Yikes! There goes my free will. Well, sorry to tell you, you never had a free will in the first place anyway. So, at any rate, you have a free moral agency, but you don't have a free will, as Jonathan Edwards points out in 500 pages over and over and over again. Read the definitive work. Okay. Now, I got a little bit off on the rabbit trail there. (laughs) But, nonetheless, the determinism of God's decrees... It's not very popular in American individualistic circles to think in these categories because they think that, oh, well, we just lost our liberty. 
Now, let me ask you this. If God is almighty, could he determine everything in your life and still give you personal liberty and there wouldn't be any contradiction between one or the other? That is possible, is it not? In other words, God could do that, couldn't he? He could do that. He could determine everything and give you your liberty, and your liberty would still be in consistency with his determination, and you wouldn't know the difference, would you? You wouldn't be conscious of somebody pulling strings on you every time you did something. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist much to think that, yeah, if God is God, he could set up the relationship between his own decree and human action in a way in which your liberty is not destroyed and his determination isn't either. So, is it what Warfield called years ago, concourses? Concourses. I love that word. It comes from a Latin word, concuro. Concuro. What does concuro mean? To run together with. It's like horses. Run together with one another. Okay, what's running together? God's decree and human liberty. There is no contradiction between them. They are concurrent. Where there is the one, there is the other. You still running with me? You know what they used to say? Are you running with me, Jesus? You remember that? From the Jesus Freak movement? Okay. All right. They didn't know they were talking about concurrence, did they? They were actually talking about the kind of thing B.B. Warfield would talk about. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> All kidding aside here. <clears throat> uh, the emphasis upon the decree is an emphasis upon God's determination to, uh, <clears throat> to fix events and everything that comes to pass comes to pass according to his determinate counsel and will. All right. Now, what decree has he determined? Verse 2, what decree or what determination has he made? Has he planned? Has he purposed? Has he willed? The day of the Lord. And what is that? In this context, what is that? Judgment. What is it? Time, place. Jerusalem, okay, yes? 586 B.C. Go to the head of the class. Thank you very much, Randy had that too? Okay, good. All right, so he has determined to bring down the wrath of the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord, in 586 B.C. Is that all? 586 B.C.? Is that the only determination, is that the only decree he's made with respect to the judgment day? No. The end of the consummation, yes. We noticed in our last study that in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 are dealing with the cosmic day of the Lord, the consummate day of the Lord. He talks about the proximate day of the Lord, verses 14 and 15, which is going to fall upon Judah and Jerusalem. And then he switches gears and he talks about the consummation, the day of the Lord at the end of the age when our Lord Jesus comes back in glory. All right, so in this uh, second chapter, verse 2, he is once again featuring that 
proximate, that near coming, that near at hand day of the Lord. The now day of the Lord, which is at hand, not the not yet day of the Lord, which is far off. All right. Um, okay, any questions uh, about the decree or its object? Very good. All right, uh, before we talk about the variation on the uh, word takes effect, uh, which is in the New American Standard margin, uh, we'll take a break. So uh, the effect of that will come after the break. All right, now we're at verse 2. And in the New American Standard, the second line has, I'm sorry, the first line has a marginal note on the phrase takes effect and indicates that literally the Hebrew reads is born. Before the decree is born. Now, this is a uh, rather vivid uh, literary uh, expression. It's used in the Hebrew Bible routinely to refer to childbirth or bringing forth a child. And so the imagery here is the decree of God coming forth, being delivered coming to life, taking effect in the world of time and space. In other words, God's decrees are not decrees which are within his mind alone, only known to his secret counsel. God's decrees take effect. They are delivered. They are born in time and space history. Reflecting once again upon the decree under consideration, namely the decree of God to bring the judgment of the day of the Lord upon Jerusalem, we know that it was, it it did come to birth in the year 586 B.C. I like the fact that the marginal reading is there, Uh, I'm not going to quibble with the phrase takes effect. I'm actually going to borrow on it uh, later on this evening. But I want you to to sense the the vivid imagery of the use of the literal Hebrew as well. All right, now we talked about chaff when we were discussing verse 1 for a moment. Now, uh, let's ask, how does the chaff pass? If you keep your finger there in Zephaniah 2.1, or 2.2 actually, let's turn back to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, and ask the question, how does the chaff pass? Answering it by looking at the first psalm, and particularly the fourth verse of Psalm 1. And when someone has it, if they'll read it out for us, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. So according to Psalm 1-4, how does the chaff pass? 
gets blown away. It's blown away. Yes, the wind blows it away. All right, now turning forward, keeping your finger in Zephaniah 2, 2, keep turning forward to Mark chapter 3, verse 12, which will also be parallel to Luke chapter 3, verse 17, but we'll read Mark 3, verse 12 when somebody has it. I'm sorry, Matthew 3, verse 12, I apologize. Matthew 3, verse 12, parallel to Luke 3, verse 17. I'm stuck too much on Benji's series on Mark here for a moment. Matthew 3, 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shape he will burn with unquenchable fire. He will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there are two ways in the Bible. Incidentally, before we leave Matthew 3, we ought to ask who is speaking in that passage, the 12th verse of chapter 3. That is John the Baptist. So uh, there are two ways in which the chaff passes according to the Scripture, and one way is it's blown away, and the other way is it's burned with unquenchable fire. Now, the very next two lines are going to shift the emphasis upon how this chaff passes in our case, in Zephaniah's case, to the image of fire, the fiery anger, the fiery wrath of God. What do you notice then about those last two lines of verse 2? I'm uh, numbering them 2C and 2D because there are four of them in the arrangement of this verse in the New American Standard. What do you notice about those last two lines? <coughs> Dan, your head's up too soon. Well, it looks like it. <laughs> now you can't hide it. Well, it looks like... He's equating the day of the Lord's wrath with burning. Good. Uh, you're, you're a little bit ahead, but uh, you've observed that those two lines are parallel. How parallel? How parallel? Very parallel, except for Very parallel. How very parallel? One, two, three, four, five, six Hebrew words are the same. They're exactly alike except for? Burning and day. Burning and day, exactly. All right, so those last two lines in the Hebrew, in the original, are exact duplications with the exception of two words, the word burning and day. So in the Hebrew text, burning and day are precisely in the same position in each of those two clauses. If you count the Hebrew words, Professor Sanborn, if you count the Hebrew words, where does the word burning occur in that first clause? If you, that would be the seventh word. Wait, 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 that would be one, two, three, four, five, sixth word. Actually, it's the fifth. We'll put Alcane together, okay? Okay. <clears throat> okay. It's the fifth word in line uh, 2C. And what is it in line 2D? I was, I was thinking the lowing 
vote separate. You want to make them together too? No, that's fine. I still think it's a fifth. So, in in both uh, lines, they are in the fifth position. So we ask ourselves whether we argue about fifth or sixth. In the, they're in the same position. They they appear in the same count from the beginning of the word before. In each case, why then does he place them in precisely? The same position in each clause. Well, you're, you're not talking about off. You're not talking about anger. You're talking about the other two words. Yes. They are the position. Yes. Okay. Well, if burning and day are in the same position. It's the same thing. Transpose? Not transpose. The day of burning. The day of burning. It's a mirror, isn't it? It's a reflection. He puts them in the same position so that they mirror one another. This day is the day of burning. The burning is on this day. You see, it's a mirror image. And in order to emphasize that, he precisely organizes each of the words until there's a difference in order to reflect that drama, to reflect that paradigm of the mirror of God's burning anger on the day of his wrath, wrath determination. Okay. Verse 3. We've already pointed out that the word seek appears three times here. It is an imperative three times over. But we want to notice this verse in relationship to chapter 1, verse 6. Seek, and there you have the Hebrew word, bikshu, in contrast with do not seek, lo, bikshu. You notice that exactly the same Hebrew form is used. The only difference is that little upside-down uh, uh, looks like an upside down, uh, or it looks like a reverse kind of uh, fat L, and uh, the aleph, uh, which is the p- particle for not in Hebrew or no. <clears throat> so uh, in verse 1 6, the very same word for seek is used, only there it's an indictment. Zephaniah has charged the children of Judah and Jerusalem with not seeking. Here, in this chapter, the reverse is uh, placed before them. They are invited to seek. All right, now why do I observe that? The reverse pattern is a confirmation of what we observed at the beginning. The beginning of this evening, we pointed out that the tone of chapter 2 is very different from chapter 1. This reverse of negation is precisely confirming that point. In other words, It's no longer not seek, it is seek. It is no longer the negative, it is the positive. It is no longer wrath, but it is a gracious invitation. And if you seek, 
Notice the word perhaps. If you seek, perhaps you will be hidden. Now, there's a New Testament passage which is very similar to the tone of this. It's found in 2 Timothy 2.25. And I like the King James original of this, but let's turn to uh, to 2 Timothy 2.25. And in whatever version you have, go ahead and read it out. This gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. King James Version was peradventure. Peradventure. God may grant them repentance. Perhaps in Zephaniah 2 3, perhaps you will be hidden. Peradventure you will be hidden. Is God bound to show mercy if sinners seek him? Is God under obligation to show mercy if sinners seek him? Does seeking of sinners in debt God or merit from God that the sinner finds God? No. Well then, is God inclined to show mercy if sinners seek him? And let's take a look at two passages. Let's keep our finger in Zephaniah 2 and let's go back to Deuteronomy 4 first. Deuteronomy 4, verse 29. And when somebody has it, go ahead and read it out. Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. All right, now keep your finger there and turn forward to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. And go ahead and read that one out when you get it. You will seek me and find me when you search for me in all your heart. Now what phrase did you find in both of those passages, Deuteronomy 4 and Jeremiah 29, what phrase did you find there that was duplicated? With all your heart. With all your heart. With all your heart. Well, is a sinner's heart inclined to seek the Lord? Is a sinner's heart disposed to seek the Lord? By nature, is a sinner prone to seek the Lord? then how will the sinner get a heart to seek the Lord? You have your finger in Jeremiah 29, 
23 still, or 29 still, let's turn back to Jeremiah 24, verse 7. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. And I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. And they will be my people, and I will be their gods, for they will return to me, is their whole heart. How will they get the heart to seek the Lord? Ben? God will give it to them. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God will give what? A heart of flesh. He will give a new heart. God will give the heart. That will seek him. Don't we have a hymn in the Trinity hymnal? I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of you. If any sinner seeks truly the Lord God, he seeks because God first sought him. If any sinner genuinely seeks so that he shall find, it is because God first sought and found him. There is no heart to seek the Lord, let alone find him, unless God makes that heart alive, unless God makes that heart newborn, unless God brings forth by his decree life, new life, heaven-born life, and that sinner will find in his seeking. God had first found him in his seeking. Let us have no suggestion here of the power of the sinner in his natural state to seek the Lord. The exhortation to seek is there. It is the duty of the sinner to do so. But concurrent with the exhortation to seek is God effecting the exhortation, bringing it to pass that he seeks truly and sincerely, according to Zephaniah 3, with a humble heart, with a lowly disposition, out of self-abasement, with a broken and contrite soul, if we may borrow from Psalm 51. He seeks in the way that God draws seekers to himself. 
sincerely, genuinely, brokenly, contritely, with no pride or arrogance, lowly and humble, confessing that they are worms and not men, that they plead for God to be merciful to them, sinners, damnable sinners, and they confess it because they know it. That is sincere seeking. That is the seeking which leads to fruition. That is the seeking that leads to finding. All right, now, in this third verse, although the word is not used here, this is the first hint of a particular kind of theology in Zephaniah, which is also common to the Old Testament prophets. If you look at verse 7 of this second chapter, I think you can pick out the word. This is what kind of theology? Is it restoration? Not quite, although your version may have restoration. No, restoration is in there, but there's another word that's in verse 7. God will care for them. One word. Remnant theology. This is remnant theology. It's a common theme in the prophets. Here is the first occurrence of it in Zephaniah. He doesn't use the word in verse 3. He does use it in verse 7. It's another indication that the last verse in each of these subunits, verse 3 and verse 7, are parallel. But nonetheless, we have an affirmation that God will, by his decree, preserve a remnant who will because of his new birth, because of the birth of the effect of that decree, God will change their hearts from not seeking to seeking, from not desiring to desiring, for not longing to longing. God will change their hearts from not loving, from hating God, to loving him, loving him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we face the question of what genuine or sincere seeking of the Lord is. And obviously, it is the Lord as the object of that seeking. The Lord Jesus Christ alone, the object of the seeking soul. No other hope, no other Lord, no other Savior, no other supreme delight, no other supreme delight of the love of that soul, none other than the Lord Jesus whom I seek and no one else. The manner in which this seeking proceeds is through lowliness and humility twice over. Zephaniah specifies that quality of self-abasement. A broken and a contrite heart, a humble and lowly disposition, the Lord will not despise because he has brought you low.
because you are low. He has pierced you through with guilt and conviction because you are pierced through with guilt and conviction. He will not despise what he has worked in you. His brokenness and his contrition of your soul, he will not despise. It is not the act itself which commends you. It is the response to the act of God which redeemed you and changed you. That is where the glory goes. That is where the gratitude flows. And the result of this genuine seeking according to Zephaniah 2.3, the result is that you will be hidden from God's anger. You will hide me from your anger, O Lord. What, Lord, will hide me from your anger? I deserve your anger. You look at me in my natural state, and I am the object of your wrath. I acknowledge it. I confess it. I am aware of it. What will hide me from your anger? And Zephaniah answers. Righteousness will hide you from the anger of the Lord. Well, where will I find righteousness to hide me from your anger, O Lord? Christ Jesus will hide you in his righteousness clothes. He will bundle you up and cover you over with his spotless robe of righteousness and you will not see the wrath of God nestled in the righteousness robes of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will hide you in his righteousness. Well, what will then hide me from the hellish damnation that I deserve? The wrath has been hidden from me, but the damnation that I deserve is still outstanding. One is sufficient. One is sufficient to deflect that hellfire from you. Because he takes it to himself. He takes the hellish damnation you deserve and in your place he descends into hell for your sake. Descends into hell for your sake so as to emerge from the wrath of God with payment made in full in your name. Payment made in full to the hellish torment you deserve in your name. Your name joined to his magnificent heavenly name. Heavenly name, not hellish name. I sought the Lord 
He moved me to seek him, seeking me. I humbled myself before the Lord. He humbled himself in humbling me. How low was the humility of Christ that in his humbling himself and thinking of himself of no reputation, he took you along with him in that humiliation. He brought you low as he came low for you. He was humbled. And in his humbling, you were humbled. I hid myself from divine wrath in the Lord Jesus. He hid himself in divine wrath in hiding me. Can you begin to imagine the measure of the torment of the Lord Jesus in that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was for you that he cried, so that you will never cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me to the terrors and torments of hell? I found righteousness in the Lord Jesus. He became righteousness. He became righteousness in robing me with his perfect, spotless, eternal righteousness. Do you see, brothers and sisters, Zephaniah is preaching the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to you in this third verse. Even as he was preaching the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to that community in Jerusalem and Judah in the 6th and 7th century B.C. This is the heart of every line of the Hebrew prophets. It is the perfect heart of the Lord Jesus Christ who with all his heart perfectly sought the Lord his God and was rewarded with being found of his Father and carried with him every elect soul who was united to him in his seeking. For you see, in the last analysis, you will never seek and find 
until Jesus seeks and finds for you. He must do for you what you are unable to do for yourself. And then in him, united to his perfect life, death, and resurrection, all that God exhorts you to perform has been performed completely in the Lord Jesus. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew it was he seeking me through his dear son, my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Zephaniah preaches that to you. Take comfort in the gospel according to Zephaniah. Shall we pray? Days of such sadness and tragedy, those days of Zephaniah so long ago, Days of such foolishness, political incompetence, religious treachery, judicial stonewalling. Days of approaching death and destruction. But also days of your gracious invitation, Lord. And beyond the invitation, your gracious effectuation that in that remnant according to the election of grace in the 6th century B.C. There were those who sought you, Lord. And because you had sought them first, they found you. We in these last days seek you, Lord, And we do so because by your grace, you first sought us. Even as Christ sought us out as wandering, straying sheep and put us on his shoulders, has carried us home to the heavenly chambers of glory. Thank you, gracious Lord, for inviting us to this wonderful, rich reality, even through the words of your servant Zephaniah so long ago. With him, we bless and thank you in Jesus' name.